Welcome to the Hunter Farmer Artisan Podcast. My name is Ryan Garrett. I will be your host. Today, I'm quite excited to have Dan Wilson on the line because Dan is a very engaged Northeast Washington resident when it comes to this whole debacle that we find ourselves in sometimes when it comes to conservation. And he sits or he participates in more agencies than I could quickly rattle off. Dan, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. It is uh, great to connect with you. Uh, I look forward to the opportunities when we can see and speak. It's always beneficial. Yeah, it's always fun. We don't we don't run into each other enough. And it seems like when we do, it's always so fleeting because we're just always you're on your way to your thing and I'm on your way to my thing. And I don't think we've ever been able to sit down and have an honest to goodness, real conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It is. It is. Uh, we were fortunate to catch each other in passing is, yeah. is really the, the, the only thing I can say about it. And I enjoy it every time. Well, um, before I get into the interview a little bit, I do want to just back up and say that I had some listener feedback recently, and I'm super excited that you're here today because you're going to help me with that listener feedback. I was talking with Marina Treese, and we were talking about wildfires, and I mentioned that the increasing frequency of the wildfires was a problem. And I had a listener that was very quick to jump on me and say, it's not just the frequency, it's also the intensity because of increased fuel loads and just overall general heat, whatnot. Um, and I thought that was a good point. But to be honest, my expertise on the, the matter of fires is limited to what I've been able to parse from the various like desert museums that I've went to that actually discuss how fire works on the landscape. So I'm excited to have you on today because you have some more direct experience with fire, which we'll get to later. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself, the various things you're involved in and how on earth that occurred. So a little bit about me. I've been in Spokane for nearly 20 years, which is dates me a bit. It reminds me how old I'm getting every time I say that. You know, I wear a couple different hats, as you mentioned. Uh, I work for Conservation Northwest doing outreach and engagement in Northeast Washington. I'm co-chair of the Washington chapter and then particularly as it of backcountry hunters and anglers. And then Particularly as it relates to fire and forest, I uh, serve on the Northeast Washington Forest Coalition or NUFIC board. There's a whole lot that can be said about coalitions and where they come from, but you know, to get straight to the heart of like the fire conversation and especially specific to the Colville National Forest, uh, which is the forest you and I probably know best. Yeah, fire is interesting and a complicated relationship for the citizens in the forest itself and users in the forest. But, you know, one thing I, I always say about a lot of that forest in the Colville is, um, it, is it is a fire regime forest. It, it has experienced and needed fire um, as long as it's existed, for a lack of better ways to put it. The, the place where fire starts to get tricky there is, you know, what interval does that fire need to happen at? You know, what's the frequency that fire should roll through? 
and it's different at different parts of the forest, different elevations, different forest compositions. But you know, overall, that forest historically should have experienced some degree of burning on a pretty frequent basis. When you talk about you know thin ponderosa and kind of that drier areas, like they probably experience fire really frequently, maybe every couple of years, uh, and that would be good for the forest health. And you get higher in elevation and. Uh, you know, thicker tree stands and different species, and maybe it happens every 10 years or more. And what we are experiencing now, I think in particular, and what, what we're responding to is that we're seeing fires happen frequently, and they're increasing in severity and scope that they burn in areas that ideally wouldn't, might burn semi-regularly, but wouldn't burn at those large devastating levels. And so a big part of the work for the Forest Service and people interested in forestry is how do we return this forest to a healthier landscape that maybe reflects better burning practices and better management over time. Yeah, and that's that is a very complicated goal for social reasons. That's a complicated goal for financial reasons. That's complicated for just the logistics, I would assume, especially if you're starting to get into the logistics of doing prescribed burns or anything like that, which I assume is why you need a coalition style group in order to accomplish anything. So for those of the listeners who don't know, which by the way, includes myself, what the heck is a forest co coalition? Yeah, it takes a bit of backstory to get there, but I'll try and, and rush through it. Our forests have always been managed by indigenous caretakers um, that would do cultural burning, um, you know, human presence on the landscape and human adaptations and implementation on that landscape is just a part of human history and, and the natural world. We are a part of natural history. We are a part of natural history. You know, where it comes into the Forest Service, and this is where things start to sometimes get complicated, is there's often some finger pointing going around, around, you know, what's to blame for the conditions that the forests are in now. Um, but I think most people could acknowledge that we, you know, for 100 years or so, didn't do a great job managing forests. We um, might have harvested large trees, too many large trees. Maybe we cut too many in one area. and that led to something that's called the Timber Wars, um, which was, you know, extractive logging industries really coming to a head and in these like really tough entrenched positions against conservationists who really wanted to see, you know, significant changes to forest practices. Uh, and the Forest Service kind of stuck in the middle there and trying to balance their mission and their mandate alongside all of this. And towards the end of these Timber Wars, it got to a point where, you know, there is economic damage to rural communities and there was anger and frustration. And, you know, everybody had had a valid reason for their value sets in those timber wars, whether it's sustaining a rural economy and a way of life or whether it's, you know, a real need to preserve these trees that we can't exactly grow to large sizes uh, overnight. And these, um, you know, kind of in the fallout or in the recovery from these timber wars, was an opportunity where really um, passionate, invested individuals from different positions got together and said, we can sit in a room together, we can find common ground, we can 
find shared outcomes? And then how do we work together to find those? And once we find those, how do we bring those forward to the forest service that say, helps them maybe bring the best science forward in forest management? How does it avoid future litigation? And how does it keep, keep rural you know, economies moving and you know, allows for timber harvest that's, you know, uh, has sustainability to it. And so that's what coalitions are. You know, the one in Northeast Washington has, it's, it's essentially a, a stakeholder group that helps, that wants to work with the Forest Service on how to do best practices. So it's got, you know, recreation interests, which is a seat that I sit in, in that space. It's got a timber producer in there. It's got conservation interests in there. And we all sit together in a room and talk about, you know, how is this project going to be, you know, beneficial to the forest and beneficial to community and avoid pitfalls or making mistakes that we might have made in the past. And so while they don't work directly for the Forest Service, the goal is to have a collaborative problem solving group that can stand up and, you know, work with the Forest Service to help them achieve best possible outcomes. Yeah, basically your whole job is to meet with stakeholders who are going to have slightly different takes on how to manage things and come up with a best compromise sort of solution that you can then present to the forest solution. Because at the end of the day, that's probably going to be the most um, implementable solution because you're going to have the most support. Is that kind of the the thrust of what you are trying to accomplish. Yeah, and you know, compromise gets such a such a, you know, dirty connotation sometimes that it's not I always I don't think it should though. Yeah, and compromise, you know, carries that that connotation as a dirty word and it's and it's not. And I think part of that is people think that compromise means well, I'll win this time and you'll lose this time, maybe the next time the roles will be reversed. When I think what compromise actually means is, you know, finding those very narrow difficult windows of opportunity where everybody can walk out being happy with the outcome, um, or at least confident that the outcome is doing the least amount of harm across the board. Yeah, I can't remember which politician it was. But it was a politician who said, you know, the, one of the first things we did when we got into a room is we, we quickly just set out the things that we couldn't agree on. And then spent the rest of the time working on what we could maybe find common ground on. And the more time we were able to spend on that common ground, rather than bickering over the stuff that you're never going to, you know, sway the other person on, the the more we could actually get done. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. And, you know, I'm, I frequently claim the title of, you know, dumbest person in the room in our coalition meetings, because my focus is recreation. Um, and I sit in a room with, you know, generations long timber harvesters that have, you know, adapted their entire processes to selectively harvest trees that need to come out of the forest anyways. And, you know, people with multiple degrees in forestry. And I just sit there getting to absorb a lot of their work and maybe being like, hey, what about these trails over here? Um, I like but the deer. <laughs> is, yeah, but the benefit to that is, is it, at some point, I usually in the room, I'm like, now explain it to me like I'm a fifth grader because I can't keep up with some of these really complicated subjects around forest management. And it helps because sometimes I think that's beneficial for everyone, you know, whether that's industry leaders or scientists and conservationists or the Forest Service to remember that 
sometimes we have to break this down to really simple pieces for people um, that are invested and concerned about what the outcome of these decisions might be. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I, I definitely agree that the um, one of the best ways to learn a subject, even a subject that you're well-versed in, try to teach it. Um, so if you have to, if they are, they're in a room with you where they have to explain some of the things that they just know because they've read book after book after book or lived it forever to you and try to break it down in you know a 15 minute period yeah they're gonna they're gonna be able to know that better and frankly that skill is so necessary today because none of us have the time to be subject matters matter experts on everything that affects us i mean yeah right right now um my my wife has wrangled me into helping her on an article that she's writing and you know i i knew i was in trouble when i walked into her office and i saw several 70 to 80 page manuscripts strewn across her desk and she looks at me and says i'm gonna need your help on some statistical analysis <laughs> Right. Well, you have a background in in statistics too, don't you? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. I, I like I eh, I don't even know how that occurred in my life. It just happened. I I sort of fell into it. Um, doing statistical analysis for Fortune, actually now two fifty companies. Um, but it, it's just one of those things where I have a real passion for mathematics, and so. I got good at it, like by necessity, and then various managers recognized it and started putting me into positions where I would be able to utilize that and built a reputation within the industry um, where I haven't had to apply for a job in a long time. I've always get cold, which is cool. Um, but and I'm so glad you've got a skill set in you know mathematics because I don't. And, you know, taking that back to, you know, the conversation about who I get to sit in a room with the coalition, like, I I will never, as you said, I will never have the skills needed to be a forestry expert, or to be somebody who anybody's going to look at for peer reviewed science around silviculture and forest health and things like that. But it's nice to have those people there and then lean into those resources and say, like, okay, now explain it to me, like a fifth grader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely uh, critical. I'm I'm just curious for my own edification because I haven't lived lo here long enough to really absorb biosmosis. What is kind of the general gist of what we're trying to do with wildfire and forestry management in this area? I've talked to some um, some timber guys, one of which I am absolutely going to have interviewed on this show because he's do been doing it for like 60 years and he is just a wealth of knowledge about um both timber and wildlife encounters but like what for for the people who don't know about it what are we doing here are we doing a lot of prescribed burns are we trying to do thinning what what do we do to get through the the issue that faces us with more increased and intense fires yeah you know i think if you were to pull Northeast Washington communities around what their major concern is with the Colville National Forest, um, 
fire is going to be at, at the top. It's going to be at the top every time, even though the ears, there's grazing up there and there's big game hunting up there. Um, it's, it's a fire concern. And, you know, how do we address that is through a lot of programs. You know, prescribed burning is a big part of it. And I think what we have to recognize is that we're trying to play catch up right now with a long period of heavy fire tools that weren't, that weren't applied well is the best way I'll put it. Cause I don't want to, you know, sit here and accuse anybody of doing anything wrong. Like fire suppression is a part of it. You know, some of our timber practices were a part of it. Some of the loss of opportunity to manage forests when we could have was probably a part of it. And so all this leads to this, like, you know, conditions where we're looking at big devastating fires um, that are outside our control. So how do we break that down? Prescribed burning is part of it. And I think, you know, what we're looking for with prescribed burning is treat as many acres as we can outside of fire season in prescribed burn seasons so that we're ready for fire season. You know, I think the Colville got off really well this year in fire season. Yeah, but But that doesn't mean that, yeah, we like the Colville did great on fire, but that doesn't mean that I think every Forest Service employee probably woke up every day during fire season and just hoping for one more day of low incident. And that's a that's a terrible way to go through fire season. You know, other communities got hammered in eastern Washington that they're in at, you know, fire horrific levels they're not used to. So in those in those prescribed burning seasons, the goal is treat as much as you can, as broadly as you can, make it where it really matters in the the wildlife urban interface areas, try and get those kind of burns done to protect community. And prescribe, you know, just more on prescribed fire. Those those windows are really challenging. There's, um, you know, air quality indexes that you've got to be concerned about. Yep. There's the conditions on the day, and so just as much as I think, you know, forest managers are sitting there worried every day through fire season, you know, hoping to avoid an incident, significant incident. I think they spend just as much time on the other side, waking up every day during prescribed burning season, hoping they can get out on the ground and treating. Um, because the truth is, and I heard this from a, you know, a, a tribal staff member from the area, you know, I think communities like Eastern Washington need to just be willing to choose their smoke. You can have it choking and stifling for months during the summer, or you can have it at lower, maybe uncomfortable le- levels in the spring and fall. But we're at a point where we just have to accept that there's going to be smoke in the air and there's a better at kind of alternative. Yep. Yeah. And then. And then thinning uh, is the other part of it. Smart thinning, I think, is a you know adaptive management, trying to restore these forests to what they should look like. Um, you know, Eastern Washington, in my in my experience living out here, has never been as bad as some of what you might see in Western Washington as far as like large scale clear cuts that I I remember when I was growing up. By the time I got out here, it was mostly selective thinning, and it's putting energy and emphasis into those thinnings that are going to restore forest health, and decrease fire danger. And those aren't mutually exclusive topics. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you know, with those those thinning things, I know that that can actually be a pretty profitable model because you can extract more wood over time because of the regrowth rates as opposed to a clear cut, which is pretty much a one-and-done deal. And it's it's very interesting because from my own property, I can actually see three different timber companies and how they manage their stuff and one of them 
clear cut something a really long time ago and it's never come back. And I don't think it ever will based on where they clear cut it and like just the grade of the hill there. But the other stuff gets thinned and it's that whole, yeah, we'll be back here in another 15 years to do this again. And that's very impressive to me. Yeah. And I, and I'm not quite sure exactly if you can see their operation, but I know, for example, one timber producer up there, you know, retooled their entire mill to focus on small diameter trees that they said, you know, the largest thing we can run through our mill is I, I'll probably get the number wrong, something around like 18, 20 inches, something like that. That's a huge investment to retool an entire mill. But yeah. at the same time, in, in doing so, they set up to make a profitable product out of trees that in the past people wouldn't really consider much value. And in doing so, they're, you know, part of this healthy forest management idea. And, you know, those are those are the kind of leaders and investors in their communities and in resource management that are just, you know, leading the way for the rest of us. Yeah, that's really cool to to hear. And and that's definitely that that touches on a local note for me because everybody I know is I mean, most of who I know is in the timber industry to one extent or another. You're either a timber industry or a farmer or you're welding boats where yeah. I live. <laughs> um so moving on a little bit from that, uh and the the cooperative elements of what we're doing, I think that really draws into sharp relief that we can't just approach policy from a standpoint of the person, the stakeholder versus the government agency that that dictates the policy. I think that it's really important that we're not only engaging them because that is important, like what's going on with hunters versus the fish and wildlife commission, but we have to be able to engage other stakeholders as well and the general public. So what does that look like for you when it comes down to what we're dealing with right now with the fish and wildlife commission? Uh, big questions, long answers. Uh, I think that, you know, when it comes to, and, and I'm putting on my, my hunting hat in particular here, when it comes to working with the commission or the department, it's, um, I, I heard somebody use the expression lately of stiff olive branches that, you know, extend an olive branch, a stiff olive branch, um, as a way to, you know, try and find middle ground without sacrificing your values. but also, you know, look at the other opportunities besides maybe your direct focus interest. If, say, you're super deep into, you know, elk in the Colville National Forest, and that's why you want to engage every single time, you know, diversifying your approach to an agency or commission and saying, yeah, I care about elk. We'll keep that analogy going. But what does that mean? I also care about habitat. And so what are they doing on habitat that I can be engaged on? Um, or it might mean, you know, what can we do about winter feed? Uh, you know, what's that opportunity look like? So it means instead of like running directly and just carrying one flag all the time, you know, putting yourself sometimes in the agency or the commission's shoes and say, you know, how does this fit under a larger umbrella? And how do I work on what I care about maybe by coming at that under that umbrella from a different angle? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, if you're looking at trying to protect 
something that you care about, you know, they, they get tired of hearing that, well, I just want to protect bear hunting or cougar hunting. I'm, I'm sure to a certain extent, the commission is tired of hearing from me in that regard. I would love to have a discussion with them about what they're doing for gray squirrel management. And I was glad that there was somebody available there to discuss that because I absolutely love gray squirrels and I would love to see them recover to like just good numbers. But selfishly, I would I would love to get them to a recoverable point where they were actually hunt a huntable population again. Um, But for that, you know, rather than just being like, you need to save the squirrels, you need to save the squirrels, we could say, well, what are we doing to help increase the mast crops that they grow on like can we incentivize people to keep white oaks on their property because a lot of people hate white oaks for some reason i don't know why um when i sold my last property i was like very very specific like hey you shouldn't cut these white oaks down um <laughs> because they represent some serious mass crop for squirrels and whatnot and those things had got the they got cut down within uh within the year of me selling the place <laughs> uh i think it's it's so interesting that you bring up western gray squirrel just because that brings it strangely right back into talking about about timber and and you know private private forest management and yep. forest management and you know they're there's often an idea that maybe say Western gray squirrel protections are are definitely going to be punitive towards private landowners and their forestry practices. I think I think I've heard that that you know voluntary restrictions didn't work because people didn't try. I don't think that's that's the case. I think people tried. I I try and engage people with good faith. I think people probably tried, but I also think that if you know we were to move to you know an uplisting status. For gray squirrels, that 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 doesn't have to be a binary outcome where gray squirrels can only win if private forest managers lose. Like there has to be that solution that says maybe there's going to be some changes in the way we manage those forests. Maybe there's going to be some new some new rules on canopy density, for example. But we're not trying to uplist them to harm private forest owners. Trying to uplist them to recover them and then get that species to a place where we can get it off the list and celebrate. But that binary language can always be persistent and, and frustrating sometimes that somebody's got to lose for somebody else to win. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we do it. We do live in a time of, um, and an ecosystem of competing interests. So I can understand how some, sometimes that's true. But I don't think it always has to be. And I think the best solutions are ones where everybody can walk away from it and be like, ah, that actually works. I would certainly like to see more gray squirrels and them helping to plant trees because they're really good at, at that because of being industrious little hoarders that they are. Um, but no, it is it is very interesting. Fun Fun fact, just on the squirrel thing, there is a unit in Oregon that has no closed season and no bad bag limits on gray squirrels because there are and it's a very small unit and it's all because of timber damage hmm. and that's been on the books since the 70s and I like of course as somebody who wanted to hunt gray squirrels that's where I got my first one because I was just fascinated by this idea that there was just this little sentence 
in the book that says you can hunt in this tiny little slice of life. And yeah, there are a ton of there are a ton of gray squirrels there. So it's interesting that a place that has, you know, an, a completely open area like that has that many squirrels. And it just makes me wonder the differences between Oregon and Washington as to why there's so many gray squirrels there and we're having such dwindling populations here. I would love to understand those differences better, which I know is maybe getting a little further afield. <laughs> See, that's that's where you got to get out of my fifth grade education level around gray squirrels. But I mean, those are, I, I you know, I think those might be the same questions. You know, what's behind that question is the same thing that I've said multiple times. Like, man, you look at it, a lot of Eastern Washington, it looks just like a lot of, you know, Montana or Wyoming. And I'm like, where are my game populations compared to those states? What is so different? Because it feels like it shouldn't be sometimes. And, you know, those details, I think, are are fascinating and probably pretty frustrating, too. Yeah, absolutely. Because it really makes it hard to um, leverage any scientific studies that are done anywhere else because everything's so so different. And there's also just here specifically there is an astonishing lack of scientific literature when it comes to the various plant species that live in this area some of the the animals that live in this this area i mean you go to certain other parts of the the country you could fill a library with the amount of data that's been put out in like for one county but if you just try to look up Northeast Washington scientific data on trees, like what trees live here and what about the the ecology here, you can't find hardly anything, which is just bizarre to me. So I don't know. Yeah. Like there's openings for scientists here. <laughs> Northeast Washington is is odd. You know, it's um it's both part of the Pacific Northwest and part of the Intermountain West. And as such, it's it's not fully either of them um it's it falls in this really odd place um i think in you know in how we idealize it how we live with the landscape you know what our communities are like um it's just a really interesting kind of unique corner and it it ends up being really remote i mean it is i mean you live up there i i'm up there every week it's but it's remote in a way that isn't just as simple as on the map it just feels disconnected sometimes it's it's different than everything around it yeah um and you can really see that when you drive into this region because there's just this distinct change uh generally as you're driving uh, like i kind of really start to note the changes once you start to come through chuila that's when things really start to just shift from being what kind of feels a lot like high desert or just mixed rolling ag land to suddenly you're in rolling hills and mountains that are carpeted with a forest and do have an astonishing amount of wildlife. I mean, that's one of the reasons I moved here is the first time we came here uh, just driving around. It was like deer were everywhere. I spotted bear from the road. There were enough turkeys that I figured this was my homeland. Uh, <laughs> if, yeah, I, I mean, I wish I wish I was more successful this grouse season. I, I know the birds are up there. 
I mostly put that on me and bad timing, but I mean, Northeast Washington, it's, uh, I chose to live here because it's, it's beautiful and maybe, maybe is a little different than the rest of Washington. Maybe I am too, but it's, uh, it's a unique place and uh, it's, it's also full. Nobody else needs to move here, Um, (laughs) but it's, you know, I think we're really, no, I don't think that's really a problem (laughs) because I I will say that I, I love it here, but it's also a really tough place to live. And that's just because it's super, super, super cold in large sections of it. And I've always like, anytime somebody complains about the cold up here, my, my go-to response is, you know what? it's great because it keeps the riffraff out at least long term. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I mean, I, I love Northeast Washington. I it's why I I got involved in conservation work in different fronts just because of how much I grew to really appreciate this landscape that for me growing up as like a coastal kid, I, you know, in on the peninsula, I, I loved everything about the ocean and you know, these big wet forests. And I think by the time I made it out here, I was like, oh, wow, there really is a very different beauty and a different way of life out here that I wasn't used to. And doesn't mean it's always easy, but it's um, definitely worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I've i always described this valley, the Aladdin Valley specifically, as beautiful and brutal. Yeah. And those two things have to go hand in hand. The reason why there's so much plenty here is because of the harsh winters. That's a part of it. I've always found that to be the case in in places I've lived that like the most rich ecosystems are also some of the harshest in a lot of ways. And I I really enjoy going on these podcasts and talking to people that I know and respect. And as I went through listening to commission testimony, as I've gotten more and more involved, you're one of the the people who I've really respected for both the well-informed way you approach things as well as just the moderation of it i think you've always taken a really approachable slant to the way you speak to everybody and i think that that really helps people want to engage with you so i just i guess i just wanted to say thank you for bringing that particular mindset to the discussion because i think it's really needed Thank you. You know, if I were to, and maybe you agree with this, if I were to ever give people one piece of advice about testifying in the commission is always review the draft you wrote when you were upset before you read it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, every every time I testify, there's probably 20 or 30 copies behind whatever I prepared to say that try and, you know, restrain myself or find productive ways forward in the dialogue or you know, still speak passionately, but check some of my stronger emotions and my ego. And doesn't mean I don't, I don't feel those things and, and, you know, want to say those things, but sometimes, you know, my long-term goal is the commission and hunting in Washington and hunters in Washington should be here long after I'm done hunting or long after I'm done going out in the field or calling into commission meetings. You know, right now, it's just my opportunity to try and move the needle in a productive way. And there's going to be, you know, people who are passionate when they call in and passionate's the right word. Um, They'll sound angry. They'll sound frustrated. And I respect their voices and their, their, you know, right to be heard on that. 
but for me, I think my my goal, my opportunity is in hearing that and understanding that and also trying to be there for the opportunities where we can find shared outcomes, where we can work together. It's It takes a lot of optimism and that optimism, optimism takes a lot of bruises along the way, but I'm gonna try and stay that course as long as I can. And I appreciate, you know, your testimony, I, Ryan, I'm not even sure how long we've known each other at this point through one means or another, but I, I know even from the first time I heard you testify, I was like, man, this guy, this guy's got it. He, um, he knows how to present, he knows how to talk, and he helps elevate this dialogue. And it's great to play testimony off voices like yours in a way that I think moves us all in a productive way. Hopefully, yeah. that's my goal. Well, thank you very much for that. It, it's funny. I actually, um, after I testified this last time, I reached out to our mutual friend, uh, Mandy Carlstrom, because I, I trust and respect her. And I asked her specifically for criticism because it was like, I think I came off a little bit more aggressively than I meant to. And she's like, yeah, she, you could have changed a few words. So and and I agree with that, actually. I, I think I came off a little sterner than I meant to which I think there's a line that needs to be walked in. And in order to be able to, I think it's very important that if you're going to criticize somebody and, and sometimes criticize somebody sternly, you have to have built up a level of respect to do that. I don't think you can just go into a room guns blazing because people are naturally just going to be defensive and write you off. But if it's somebody who's built up a level of respect over time, that then goes, hey, hold on, you can't be doing that. It carries a bit more weight. And I think that we as hunters are just starting to get engaged as a whole. And so as a whole, we need to be in that credibility building phase of how we do things. But that it it takes time. And I 100% I, uh, agree with you that the for every speech I've I've written, every three minute speech, which is, you know, maybe a page, I've probably written a good 12 pages of things that I will never share with the public. <laughs> yeah, my computer is is littered with uh, old testimony drafts that I probably just need to delete at this point for for everyone's benefit, including my own. You know, I think I think one other thing that helps me when I when I am, you know, preparing to testify in commission meetings is reminding myself that these are that the commissioners are humans they're they're real normal people it doesn't mean i probably agree with all their views probably means that we might not always be willing to sit down and have a coffee but they are people and if i don't build them up into something else in my head it makes it a lot easier to try and communicate with a goal of efficacy instead of just shouting into the void sometimes and and that takes time that takes personal growth too and and because i think my testimony has changed over years when i when i go in there and it was angrier and more you know you've got to get your act together kind of talk and now it's more of how can we get our acts together together um how can we move together it take like i said you know it takes a lot of hope that that's going to be received but yeah, I, if we keep putting in the work, and I think, you know, one thing that hunters, you know, as far as putting in the work goes is, you know, this most recent commission meeting, the turnout was amazing. I was only there on 
Saturday, but the turnout from the hunting community was amazing. People shared their stories and their concerns. And, you know, I think the next thing hunters should be thinking about is now what's the next step? What do we do now? Because the next conversation can't be the conversation we just had. We walked in the room, we sat down, we spoke with authority as, you know, on many different issues and perspectives and values. What do we do now? How do we, how do we, we've called out the issue. Now, how do we bring a solution forward? Right. And I, I think that is next. Like that was just here is here is the group of people you are affecting and you have woken us up to an issue that we are now engaged in now we have to actually engage and we have to come up with those solutions and we have to figure out hey this is how we we proceed forward this is how we shift the needle forward like on this draft conservation policy maybe it's a matter of saying sitting down and being like well what does your draft look like right now these are the thing, these are why I have concerns about these portions. And I don't know, maybe it's time for me to uh, call a couple of the commissioners that I disagree with again and have a, a conversation about that. But just to wrap up and and thank you for saying that, because I I do think that that, that hope, that optimism is probably one of the most important things you can maintain as you're dealing with this fight, because it's very easy to get in that doom, doom and gloom mindset. But if somebody would like to get involved with any of the various organizations that you're involved in, or just learn more about how they can be better engaged in the hunting and the conservation community, where would you even want to direct them? There's so many options there. You know, I think that a lot of groups have done a good job of, you know, putting their name into commission meetings and into those spaces. Um, Backcountry Hunters, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, those are two that have been right in the front. You know, HAL is a great tool and, you know, provides access to a community to hear what's going on and what's coming up on the horizon. You know, I think there's real benefit for the hunting community to look at look outside the hunting community at groups that aren't directly opposed to you and might even share common ground. You know, if that's National Wildlife Federation and their affiliates, look at those groups because you just have to be willing to not agree all the time on every single issue, but have enough alignment that you could probably both have some successes when you work together. I think those are great places to look. Um, you know, for Eastern Washington, I'll just do a, a plug. The Spokesman Reviews outdoor section is one of the best pieces. Um, and it's definitely the best part about the paper, as far as I'm concerned. But it's um, just a real resource of opportunities that are coming up, um, things that are happening in the wildlife world. There's some great reporters covering this. Uh, gosh, you know, there's just so many resources that there's no excuse not to be engaged. You can find your niche at this point in Washington. I think a lot of conservation interests have come forward. Look for people who can advocate for your interests and identify what your interests are. And then look at people who can work with the people who advocate for your interests. The problem is, is if we talk about Commission on Wildlife Management in Washington, it's the groups that are really binary, that sit way to the outside and refuse to ever find a middle ground that, can be challenging to work with. 
And, you know, on the hunting side, some, some of those groups I personally love sportsman's alliances is great at what they do, but there's other groups on the other side that, you know, they're never going to want to sit in the middle. They're never going to want to have that conversation. Yeah. Don't waste your breath. Don't waste your time. Find the ones who are going to champion the things you care about. That's a really, that's a really great note to end on. And that gives me a lot of ideas of, uh, where we go next. So Thank you. As usual, Dan, you, I never come away from a conversation with you where I haven't gotten more ideas as to what I should be doing. So appreciate having you on. Right. Thank you. It's, um, it's a pleasure. It's a treat, uh, whenever we get to connect and one of these days, we're just going to have to carve out real time to sit down, maybe a, a long night or a full day. Maybe I'll, follow you around in the field or something and preferably you solve all the world's problems yeah there you go oh no i actually i like your other idea i can put you to work on tractor great you just volunteered hope, for hay season buddy i hope you never want that tractor to work again um if so <laughs> then yeah put me right on that <laughs> perfect Thanks for listening to this show thus far. I really wanted to just take a minute to thank all of the people who have taken the time and sometimes the money to support this show and my mission when it comes to getting people aware of the ways they can get involved and helping people become aware of what's going on. I really believe in this, and apparently so do a lot of you people. I'm making a switch from using Kofi.com, which is kind of like a tip-based system, over to Patreon, where I can actually do tips and monthly subscriptions. When I thought about that, you know, the typical model is that you would have some sort of exclusive content for members, and I kind of started talking to people about what that exclusive content should be, and the more I thought about it, the less I liked the idea. I really do support a lot of the kind of freeware model economies where you just produce good content and have people want to support you for it. So I made the decision that even though I'm switching over to Patreon, I'm not going to paywall any content. It's always going to be free. I've always made it a point to keep ads out of my content as well because I believe in this mission. So if you want to show your support, I set my subscription for like four bucks a month or you can send me a tip and that just helps me pay for software that pays for mics, helps pay for gas because I'm going to be driving to some of these interviews a pretty long distance. Um, it's not a money-making endeavor for me. This is something that comes from the heart. So again, for those people who've believed in that and taken the time and sometimes their finances to support this mission, thank you. Until next time, keep fighting for the things you love because it's worth it.